All right. Have you heard the news? Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are breaking away from the royal family. They want a more independent and private life. Yes, and apparently this news came as a surprise to the Queen, which generated subsequent meetings this week behind closed doors to help pave the way for the royal couple to establish residences in both Canada and the U.S. Now, you know, Queen Elizabeth has been the sovereign head of state for 68 years. She is the longest reigning monarch in the world. How many of you are watching The Crown on Netflix? It's pretty awesome, isn't it? Um, She's also the sovereign head of the royal family. So I can only imagine what it was like for Prince Harry and Meghan to face the royal grandmother this week and declare their desire to be sovereign over their own lives, where they live, how they plan their days, and how they get and spend their money. Can you imagine what it was like to face her and say, actually, we don't want to be figureheads anymore. We want to do our own thing. Now, we can't really blame them. It has to be a hard life to do what they're doing. But, you know, Prince Harry was born into privilege and obligation. Meghan Markle certainly knew what she was marrying into when she married a very public figure. But I wonder how their newfound financial independence will work for them. And, how, and whether this desire to break free of the royal family will actually bring the sort of autonomy and um, satisfaction that they're looking for. But what about us? Who is sovereign over our lives? God Almighty is sovereign over our lives. And in our lesson today, James is going to remind us of that. He's going to remind us that God is sovereign over our lives. In fact, what we're going to learn today is that God is sovereign over our schedules and our stuff. God is sovereign over our schedules and our stuff. We're going to look at this passage in two pieces. The first part we're going to look at is James 4, 13 through 16, and we're going to see how daily living, how, to, how daily living in the will of God. And then we're going to look at James 5, 1 through 6, and we're going to see wisely living with material wealth. Okay, so let's dive in to the first part of this. You know that in the last few verses of last week's lesson... Um, they were exhortations, if you can remember. They were exhortations from James about judging others. And he warned us not to be so filled with our own importance or so lofty in our own thinking that we looked down our noses at other people and we judged other people. Because remember, what he told us last week was that at its core, um, pride is the motive that causes us to speak disparagingly about other people. And he warned us about that. As we go into 2020, he warned us how to think rightly about the people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me remind you of what he said in verses 11 and 12 that we looked at last week. He said, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges his brother or sister speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See, one way that we actually end up playing God is by judging other people's lives. Um, We don't have God's infinite knowledge, and we don't have his 
uh, to be able to see a person's circumstances, and we don't have his divine perspective to look into a person's heart and see their, their core motives. And so when we make unfair evaluations about other people or their attitudes or their actions, we're actually playing God. We're actually putting ourselves in his role. And that's what James is reminding us. We're in essence taking on God's role, but we don't have God's power, we don't have God's ability, and we don't have God's love. Now, the same is true as he continues. He's saying the same is true for us when we make plans for our own lives without giving any thought to God's will. So often we assume, you know, God's in charge of the big stuff, right? He's in charge of the cataclysmic, earth-shaking stuff. But in the daily decisions, we can make our own decisions about how to live our lives under our own sovereign rulership. We say, well, yes, God may be king of the universe, but I'm queen of my castle, right? James tells us no. In fact, he says that's not true, and he infers that we're actually playing God if we go about each day making plans as though it all depends on us. And this is what he says as we start this next section. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Now in the first century, when James was writing this letter, at the time the commercial world was was bustling. And so many of the Jews were active in the business world. And there were scores of people who had actually flooded into the cities around Palestine. So it was a very active time for Jewish business people. It was booming. And so people were working hard to make money and strategizing about how to make a profit. And it's really not unlike America in 2020. We are also in a time of of bustling business. And so these words are applicable to us as well. The problem is that these business people were making all of these plans and projections without consideration of God and his will. They were just assuming that all of these variables were under their control, and all they simply needed to do was just decide what they were going to do, and it would come to be, as if, like God, they had the power to speak and make it so. And James says, but, but wait, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. You, don't, you aren't in control of the affairs of man. You don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. He says, how arrogant of you to assume that you have sovereign control over anything. What is your life? You're just a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. How's that for eating a slice of humble pie? <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Human life is so brief. It's like a mist that rises out of your mouth on a cold winter morning and then just dissipates into thin air or a puff of smoke that gets swept away by the breeze. It's so quick. The harsh reality is that life is really, really short and it doesn't feel that way if you're a mom staying at home with toddlers. I realize it. For some reason, life slows way down during those years. But once you get past that stage, it's so fast. It's so quick. And when you get to the end of a long life, you realize it was just yesterday that you were a young woman. 
And when you look at your changing appearance in the mirror and you see an old body shrouding a young woman, you say, what happened? It was just yesterday that my skin was tight and my body was firm and my muscles worked and my joints. You know, those of you who are my age and older know this to be true. Somehow they say inside of us there's still always a 25 or a 30-year-old woman peering out. And maybe, yes, and maybe that's because that's our eternal age. Maybe when we get to heaven, Jesus went, ascended when he was 33. Maybe forever we'll be 33 behind our eyes and, and forever in eternity. And God's, wis- God's word gives us wisdom about how we're to view the brevity of our lives with humility. In Proverbs 27.1, he says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. In Job 7.7, he says, Remember that my life is a breath. Psalm 39.5, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Psalm 90.12, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The truth is that God is sovereign over life and death. We don't get to choose when we're born or where we're born or what family we're born into. And we can't guarantee how long we'll live or how we'll die. God is sovereign over life and death. And James is reminding us that God is sovereign over each and every day of our lives. Now, what does that mean when we say God is sovereign? It's a term that we hear What does it actually mean? Well, biblically speaking, when we say God is sovereign, we mean that he is supreme over all things. There is no one above him. He answers to no one. He has absolute lordship over his creation. And there's nothing that happens that he hasn't foreseen and planned. The word sovereign actually is not technically a biblical term. It's a theological term. And it it occurs only in two places in Scripture, and it occurs when two names of God come together. So when the name Adonai, which means covenant God, no, excuse me, when the name Yahweh, which means covenant Lord, is put together with Adonai, which means almighty ruler or judging God, when those two words, Yahweh and Adonai, come together, the um, translators combine these words into sovereign Lord. And Theologically speaking, sovereign Lord means simply that God does not give an account to anybody. He can do whatever he wishes, whenever he decides. Certainly, he doesn't answer to the plans of man. Psalm 33 reminds us of that. Verses 8 through 11 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. You see, this is why James is telling us that it's arrogant for people to boast in their big plans as if they're in control of their own lives. So now, what does that mean? Should we not make any plans? I mean, isn't God a God of order? Wouldn't he want us to make plans? Well, yes. Yes, of course, we should make plans. 
It is good to strategize and to make goals and to plan for the future and to dream big and to move forward in life with a sense of thoughtfulness and hopefulness and expectation. That is good. But what James is saying is he's reminding us that we need to do that with humility and flexibility, knowing that God may redirect our plans according to his sovereign will. That's why he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I've known people in the course of my life who take this obnoxiously literally. Have you known people, they're like, well, I'm going to go to the grocery store if the Lord wills. (laughs) This is not actually meant to be said after every plan we make. (laughs) It's meant to be a posture of the heart. It's meant that we come before the Lord with a humble attitude with our plans. And we, we make plans acknowledging that God is Lord of our lives and he actually may redirect us along the way. I live by a motto. I call it a motto. It's, it's a core value. I have two of them I'm going to share with you today. But the first one is that we should, I should make the best laid plans and then flex. Make the best laid plans and then flex. So when you live by this perspective, you begin to see God at work in all of the twists and turns of your life that that don't then frustrate you and make you upset, but they actually become opportunities to see how God is working to redirect the plans that you made with the best of your knowledge and ability. So this philosophy has not only saved me a lot of distress, because you know, you make plans and how, rare, how often do the plans actually go as they plan? Very rarely. So rather than being stressed and upset when plans don't go as you've planned, you become to, it allows you to see God at work in surprising ways that in the flex, the, the flex times actually become the most glorious God sightings. Because you make plans, you hold them loosely, you flex, and you attribute that flex to God and his better design. So are you wondering, what is God's will for you? Well, first and foremost, it's simple. God's will is this. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. Everything falls within that. But after that, I really can't say what God's will is for you because God is God of your life and he has tailor-made his will for you. No two lives are planned according to the same pattern. You are a unique person. You've been created with unique gifts and opportunities and experiences. You are made for his good pleasure and the will of God is actually a dynamic relationship between you and him. He will direct your path as, he, as you seek him and he reveals himself to you. Most importantly, I think what he asks us is to seek him. And how do we do that? We do that through his word, which gives us truth, a perspective, and we do that through prayer, which is a dynamic of talking to him about our lives, bringing things before him. We have truth and we have relationship, and then we listen to him. We listen to the Holy Spirit. We discern his leading Um, But when we don't know what his will is, when it's not clear, then I live by this second motto. Do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. Take the next step. Discern what is the next movement and allow him to come and to guide your steps along that process. And that's what James says, that if we don't actually do the next right thing, it, it actually may be sin. He says that in verse 17, he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him is sin. 
There are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. And let me give you an example. James has been talking to us a lot in this letter about favoritism. Do you remember the lessons we had on favoritism? Favoritism is a sin of commission. It is is actively choosing to do something by favoring one person over another. That's a sin of commission. But James has also been talking to us about caring for the poor and the needy. To not care for the poor and the needy, that's a sin of omission. It's passively choosing not to do something. So both are considered sins against the will of God. So how can we live daily in the will of God? Here's a truth for you. Plan and then flex as God works with your plans for his good, for your good and for his glory. Make plans and then flex trusting that God is working in your plans for your good and for his glory. Last October, just a few months ago, Bob and I, my husband Bob and I, we had planned to go to our cabin in Montana to celebrate his birthday. We made these plans back in the spring. Um, we, we thought it would be really great to go there in October, close up the cabin for the winter, have a little bit of time together in, in our favorite place for his birthday, take some hikes, those kinds of things. Well, when that week came in October, we did hold our plans very lightly. We knew making plans in the spring, lots of things can happen between spring and fall. So we knew that these plans were to be held lightly. We actually got flight insurance, which we rarely do, to signify that we're holding these plans lightly, Lord. Um, well, on the third week of October, when it rolled around, we were ready to go. Thursday morning, we were planning to go. We were supposed to fly out early Friday morning. But by Thursday night, as we were praying, we felt the sense that we shouldn't go. Now, part of it was that Adam was coming down with a cold, and so for him, viruses can be life-threatening they, when they turn into pneumonia. He was very, very stressed about us leaving. Bob had started a new job, which when we made the plans in the spring, he wasn't working, so we couldn't have foreseen that. He was starting to feel a little bit premature about leaving a new job. Both our ministries had started, the River and BSF, so it was really, really busy. So we just thought, we prayed, and we just thought, you know what? It doesn't feel right. I think we should stay home. So we did. Now, nothing tragic happened. The plane didn't crash that we were supposed to take. Um, Adam's virus never actually materialized into pneumonia, and I'm I'm sure it would have been okay if we would have pressed through that feeling and gone. I don't know, because we listened to that prompting, but I can't imagine anything catastrophic might have happened. Um, But as it turned out, it ended up being this really snowy, cold weekend in Montana. In fact, it snowed so heavily, which was unusual for that early in the season, that we wouldn't have been able to get any of our outdoor chores done. We wouldn't have been able to take any hikes. We learned that there was actually a really tragic car accident going up the canyon where we have to go for our our, um, cabin. And we were just so at peace staying home. Like we had, we had all of our bases covered to have a weekend of rest. And we ended up all weekend long just saying to each other, oh, thank you, Lord, that we didn't go fight that battle, but we stayed here and got some rest. We got to celebrate his birthday with both of our boys. And it was just this wonderful weekend. You know, that's, I guess that was the example I could think of most recently of just like making the best laid plans and then Flexing, trusting God to direct your path. It not, may not always be to save you from crisis, but it might be just a gift. It might be just what your heart needs in that moment. Well, how about you? How do you respond when your plans are thwarted? 
when your schedule is interrupted? How do you respond? How difficult is it for you to emotionally handle changes to your best laid plans? How might you hold your plans more loosely, trusting in God's sovereign design for your daily life? Not just for the big things, like the vacations and the home purchases and should we have another child, but actually the daily things. What is God prompting you to do with your life or schedule that you're actually resisting? Will you take a step of obedience in that area by choosing just to do the next right thing? Well, another way that we play God is in our attitudes about money. And so next, James is challenging us to honor God with our wealth. Now, it's interesting because in these next few verses, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, James launches into some of the most condemning language that we've heard so far. Notice that, though, that he's no longer speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's not speaking to believers in this section. He is addressing the unbelieving, um, rich Jewish people who are living in his community. And he's chiding these unbelievers who are pursuing wealth apart from God, and they're actually leveraging their money in power and prestige over other people. Now, these rich are particularly the Jewish landowners, and they're exploiting and oppressing the poor. So James is warning them that there is a time of judgment that's coming, and their sins are going to be exposed, and they're actually going to have to pay for their evil deeds. This is what he says. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That sounds a lot like the Old Testament prophets who pronounced judgment coming on on people who are involved in evil deeds. We've already seen as we've looked at this whole letter of James so far that we know that God is so passionate for his care for the, the poor and the needy. And Jesus pronounces similar woes in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So what are the rich, what are the rich guilty of? Well, let me break it down for you so you can see. First, they're guilty of hoarding their riches. See, in those days, we've talked about this before, rich people used to flaunt their riches. Um, they would sew their jewels into their coats rather than store their money in the bank. They didn't have alarm systems to protect their homes from invaders, so they would wear their riches on their wrists with heavy metal bracelets, gold and silver, jewels on their coats. So everywhere they went, everyone could see what they were worth. And um, they also, the wealthier they were, the more they feasted on fine foods, the more that they bought expensive imported clothing. So they had a very extravagant lifestyle that everybody was able to see. But they were using their wealth to stockpile stuff, and they were not sharing their wealth with the people in need all around them. And so James says, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. They were hoarding. They were flaunting. They were using their money indulgently. So... What is this balance, then, between saving and hoarding? Of course, we know it's wise to save. We know it's wise to invest. Jesus talks about the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. It is good to save, to invest, to make your money work, 
But it's wrong to store your money when you're not paying your debts or to use all of your money for your own pleasure and not to serve the Lord. The truth is that God is the owner of everything, and we are his stewards for just a very brief moment of time. He owns everything, and we are given an entrustment of stewardship with what he gives us, and we're to use it wisely, well, not for, not for our own prestige, not for our own hoarding, but to be a good steward of the things that we've been given. The second thing these people were doing was they were cheating other, their people. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the, of the Lord of hosts. So in this case, what, what they were doing is they were not paying their laborers. In fact, some commentators say that they were actually withholding pay in hope that the rate would go down. And then when they pay their laborers, they could pay them a much cheaper amount. So they were manipulating the payment of their workers to try to save money for themselves. And refusing to pay debts or being cheap with people is one of the ways that we cheat with our money. We saw an example of this in 2008 in the financial crisis when people were losing their homes, losing their jobs. The whole economy was in great distress. And yet we saw the top executives of some of these bank and mortgage houses paying themselves million-dollar bonuses. They were using money to prosper themselves instead of caring for the people who were suffering under their tutelage. Now, the, now how? let me ask you, do, do you and I, do we err on the side of generosity or do we err on the side of stinginess? Do you know that actually it's common now to give a 20% tip when you go to a restaurant? We used to say, well, if the service was bad, it's 10%. If it's mediocre, it's 15%. If it's really, really great, it's 20%. Now it's actually considered 20% is standard. But that's a good place to heart check. How do you feel when you get really bad service, but you still are challenged to tip 20%? Are you generous or are you stingy? Do you pay your bills on time? Do you pay the people who, who do work for you in a timely way so that they can enjoy the fruits of their labor. The truth is we must be faithful to use what God gives us for the good of other people. We have to be faithful in the areas where we've been given stewardship. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. When God entrusts us with something, we are to be faithful in response to him. The third thing is living selfishly. In verse 5, it says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Picture here Hugh Hefner. Picture here a man who's living out his wildest fantasies without limitation. He's gorging himself on the pleasures of life like a pig that's being led to slaughter. And, and you know, his philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Well, you know what? Compared to the rest of the world, we are all living in luxury. In fact, our metro community here is the richest in the state of Oregon. I showed you at the beginning of the year the wealthiest five cities, Sherwood, Lake Oswego, Westland, Happy Valley. They're, we're living in a very, very wealthy community. So this, this word is a word of warning for us as well. Are we using our, our wealth for our own pleasure and our own self-indulgence? Are we becoming so comfortable with our lives that we're being lured into spiritual sleep? Are we forgetting our desperate need for God? 
Our mandate is to use our wealth to bless others, to care for the needy, and to further God's kingdom. Now, remember, James is not speaking to believers here, but he wants us to overhear his exhortations to the unbelieving rich so that we won't become complacent in our comforts and fall prey to the seductions that wealth brings. The truth is that material comforts can seduce us into spiritual complacency if we, don't, if we fail to keep our eyes on Jesus. I think you know this to be true. It's easy to become so comfortable in the things that we have that make our life just blissful in many ways, and we take our eyes off Jesus, yearning for more, comparing with each other, and not looking to God first and foremost for our sense of contentment, but looking to the things that we want to possess for contentment. Luke 12, 15 says, Jesus said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then the last thing was that these rich landowners were taking advantage of other people. In verse 6, he says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So these rich were guilty of putting to death these poor, righteous people who were trusting in God. And um, as we've seen early in our study, they were wielding their power in the courts. They were using the law to oppress them. These people had no opportunity or ability to defend themselves. They were just being crushed under the power that these rich landowners had. They, the only way they could fight back was just to cry out to God for justice. And many people may have actually died because in those days, if, a, if an employer were to withhold the wages of an employee, there was no money to eat. There was no money for shelter. It could be a life and death occurrence. Now, the really sad thing is that it was just a few years after James wrote this letter that the Romans came in in 70 AD and actually murdered many of the Jewish people, rich and poor, and many of them were then scattered so here we have this warning from James. Think of all that could be, have been avoided if there had been a godly attitude about wealth. And just a few years later, all of these rich people that James is warning, would have, some would have died, many would have been scattered with absolutely nothing. How much abuse and pain could have been avoided if they had viewed their temporary treasures as a lens of God, for God's eternal riches? So the truth is, all earthly treasures belong to God and will remain on earth after we die. Everything that we have belongs to him, and everything is going to stay when we go to be with him in heaven. We are just stewards, and we have just a very short time, and then we will step from this life into life with God, and we'll leave it all behind. I have such a profound image of my father who loved the Lord with all his heart. But when he crawled into that hospital bed just a few hours before he died, his last words to my mom were, don't forget to fix the beams of the house. He had always been a man who was so concerned with keeping his house perfect. And his last, his last words to my mom were, don't forget to fix those beams, not knowing. He didn't know in that moment that he was going to step into eternity. But he left all of that behind. It all stayed behind, and the beams got fixed, and life carries on, but he didn't get to take it with him. 
And it's, it's that way for all of us. And God wants us to hold all of our earthly treasures lightly. And he wants us to find contentment in him, for, uh, not, in, not in what we have, but in our relationship with him. 1 Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6 verses 6 through 10 says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So are you content with what you have? Whether you have actually a little or a lot, God is the one who gives and God is the one who takes away. Therefore, it is actually not ungodly to be wealthy. If you have a lot of wealth, God has given you that wealth. It is not ungodly. It is not ungodly to to make wise investments, to save those things, to pursue a job that pays well, to provide for your family. These are gifts from God. Money is actually neutral. Money is neither good nor bad. It's our attitude towards money that affects how we value it and how we use it, either to bless people or to harm people. If you love money, you will likely hoard it. You will likely be stingy with people rather than generous. You will constantly be afraid that you don't have enough money or that you're going to lose your money. And it will become an obsession for you. It will actually invade your thoughts in the middle of the night. You will actually disrupt your peace and your sleep. But if your treasure is in heaven with God, you will view all that you have as a temporary stewardship. And you'll trust God to show you how to use what he's given you. He wants you to use it to bless other people. So will you ask God to help you reorient your thinking to set you free, to be wise and generous with what you have. Because the reality is that whether you believe it or not, everything you possess now belongs to God, and you're not going to be able to take it with you. You're going to leave it all behind the day that you depart. So you can see that James is really warning us in this lesson um, to be very careful with our lives. He's warning us to be very careful that we aren't playing God. That we aren't doing that in the way that we orchestrate our days without giving any thought to him. He's saying, that's prideful. Come to me in humble submission. Allow me to order your days. Make the best laid plans and then flex. And he's warning us about how we view our stuff. That it doesn't belong to us. We're stewards for a time. So we have to be stewards that use our stuff wisely for his glory and for the good of others. And honestly, we need help with this. We live in a world that, that tells us, Actually, that we're in control, that we're sovereign, and, our, and the more that we gain, the one with the most toys wins. So we need help reorienting our thinking so that we can bring our lives rightly before him and truly allow him to be sovereign over every single day. So would you stand and let me pray for us. Father, first, we just want to praise you and say thank you as we sang this morning. You are so, so good, and you are faithful and trustworthy. You have never failed us. You have always taken such good care of us, even in the hard times, in the suffering, in the disappointments. You are even using the hardest things in our lives to to show us yourself more clearly and to grow us up in our faith. 
So we want to say thank you. And we're sorry that we haven't trusted you fully. We're sorry that we listen to the messages of the world that drive us to want to have more stuff or to hoard or to to actually love money more than we love you, love job security, love in retirement accounts, all the things that we find security in apart from just being content in you. And so, Lord, help us to have a good balance of wisdom and generosity. Lord, we want to use everything that you've given us as good stewards to further your kingdom, to love other people, to love you, to be loosely handed with not only our time, but our money. And so I'm so grateful that James just sheds light on these things. They, they really speak to right where we, we're living today. And we just want to say, would you please help us? Would you please, for each one of us, show us how we might make the best laid plans and then surrender the outcome to you and how we might use all that you've given us for your glory and for our good. And we ask this in the name and fame of Jesus. Amen.